Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a talk by Pulp Fest guest of honor, Ted White. Mr. White is a science fiction author and edited Amazing Stories and Fantastic Magazines from 1968 through 1978. Pulp Fest was celebrating 90 years of Amazing Stories magazine in 2016. This was recorded on July 23, 2016, at Pulp Fest 2016 in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the honor of this guest of honorship. And uh, this is a new venue for me. It's my first Pulp Fest, my first Pulp Convention of any kind. But I've been on the Pulp Mags list for years. And I know a lot of you by name. And for the, since this weekend, some of you by face. So that's always interesting and fun. It kind of reminds me of the first SF convention I went to when I was still in high school. I knew all these people who I got in their fanzines, but their faces were a total mystery to me. So it's the same experience 60 odd years later. I got started in science fiction because I was a reader. Now, I think that is probably true of whether you read science fiction or not, just about everybody in this room. We're all here because we read. That is the essence of what the pulps and everything else that surrounds them is concerned with. I did not, I was not a precocious reader. I learned to read in the first grade, even though my mother was a kindergarten teacher and she had had me in her school. But she didn't believe in pushing things. Nonetheless, she herself read quite a lot to us kids. Uh, she read Winnie the Pooh and books like that very well got me interested in the whole concept of stories long before I could read. And I went to my uh, church, had a library, a very small library. It was a little bookcase with, I don't know, two or three dozen books in it, max. But they were all kids' books. Uh, one of them was The Land of Oz. And I loved the pictures in it. And I took the book home and demanded that my mother read it to me. She read it to me maybe a chapter a day, which had me just sitting on tender hooks from one reading to the next, wondering what was going to happen next. So I had an incentive to learn to read. And my mother gave me a book called Jack the Giant Killer. And that was, she said, I want you to read two pages a day. Well, I finished the whole book the first day she gave it to me. And that was where my, my, my reading really started. And it started with fantasy. It started with a fairy tale, in essence. So my earliest fiction that I enjoyed reading were the Oz books and associated fantasy and fairy tales, uh, books like the Lang's different colored anthologies of fairy tales and all the classic Graham Anderson and so forth. And I had used these up by the time I was in second grade. And also on that shelf of books at the church library were a bunch of boys' books dating from early in the 20th century. Not the famous ones like the Hardy Boys or Tom Swift, but books like the Motorcycle Boys and the Motorboat Boys and the This, That, and the Other Boys. And although they were parts of series, I would only find one book from each series in this library, which was tiny. But I read them all. Many of them I read several times over. In fact, I would say in the first three years I was reading books, half of what I read was a reread. But that was my beginning with, science, with, with reading. I discovered science fiction when I was in the third grade with a British book called uh, The Angry Planet by John Keir Cross. It was exciting enough to me that I read it twice before I gave it back to the library. But in hindsight, it wasn't good science fiction. These two kids land on Mars and walk around breathing the Martian air without difficulty. That's, that's a stretch. <laughs> but, but, you know, it told me that there was something out there that wasn't 
fairy tales, but was fantastical. And the next year, when I was in fourth grade, Robert Heinlein published his first juvenile, Rocket Ship Galileo. And I got that from my public library and read it. And that did it. That closed the switch for me for all time. It turned me into a science fiction reader and fan. As Soon as I finished the last page of that book, I turned back to the first page and reread it. It was compulsively readable on a level I had not previously encountered in my short reading career. And from that point on, as new Heinlein juveniles were published, I took each one from the library and read it. And eventually I was 10, 11, 12 years old and I was noticing that there were science fiction magazines out there. I, I hung out at the, my local drugstore newsstands, but for comic books mostly, and uh, of which I am also a big fan, by the way. But then I noticed a copy of Astounding Science Fiction. This had to have been when I was no older than 10. I picked it up and I looked at it and I thumbed through it and I thought, I'll probably be able to get into this in another two or three years, but this is not for me yet. I'm not old enough for this. It was over my head as I perceived it. So I continued to get books out of the library, Groff Conklin's anthologies, the Galaxy Readers, stuff like that. And in the summer of 1951, a friend of mine who lived down the street said to me, I hear you like science fiction. I've got a science fiction book you can have. And he handed it to me. And it was not a book. It was a magazine. It was an issue of Astounding from the year before, from uh, somewhere around August or September of 1950. Well, I thought, here I am again, confronted with something that may be over my head. But now I'll give it a shot. I'll try it. I was 13. And I read that entire issue, and parts of it, I won't say they were over my head so much as I didn't find them very interesting. You know, they were on a level of political intrigue that hadn't reached me yet at that age. Uh, but as soon as I had read it, I thought to myself, there are more of these out there. And I got on my bicycle and I rode to my nearest drugstore of which there were a half dozen in my area. And I discovered that in the interim, Astounding had gone up in price from 25 to 35 cents. This was no small thing for a boy on a small allowance. But I picked up the latest issue of Astounding and while I was there, I looked at the other digest-sized science fiction magazines. And I think that was when I bought Galaxy. I don't think I found FNSF yet. I think that waited another month. But the Galaxy said that coming in the next issue was a brand new serial by Robert A. Heinlein. Oh boy, I said. That was the Puppet Masters, by the way, a damn good book, or serial then. I said to myself as I bought the first issue with the serial in it, I said, I will save these until I have all, I guess it was three installments, and then I'll read it straight through. Well, that resolution lasted less than half a day. <laughs> and then I read that installment and waited breathlessly for a month for the next. And this suckered me in. And my reading was voracious. At that time, I had, I was not a speed reader, but I read an awful lot. And by the time I was in high school, I was reading an average of three books a day although one of those or two of those might actually be magazines rather than books. They had the same amount of wordage, 60 to 80,000 words. And so in the first week of my reading science fiction magazines, I had cleaned out all the digest science fiction magazines I could find. I did not initially find imagination. I did not initially find other worlds. They weren't distributed in false church then. But I found everything I could and it wasn't enough. I was hooked. I needed my fix. I had to look at the pulps. Now, in my family, 
which was a solid middle-class family with my mother a teacher. Popes were not respected. That's the kindest way I can put it. Popes were regarded as trash by everyone I knew, teachers, family, even acquaintances, school friends. Everybody thought that popes were what people who could never read beyond comic books actually graduated to when they got older, and that they still required you to move your lips while you read. You know, it, it was a pretty bad image, reinforced by rupture easer ads on the back covers, and uh, ads for the Rosicrucians, Amork, not the real Rosicrucians, of course, but the money-grubbing ones. And, you know, it took me a while to work up my nerve to look at a pulp magazine, even though, once I started reading, I found their contents were interchangeable with the digests. I mean, accounting for editorial distinctions and preferences, but basically the science fiction and startling and thrilling wonder was every bit as good as the science fiction and galaxy and astounding, if not better to my taste then. I mean, where did you find Fletcher Pratt and Sprague de Camp most often then? And a lot of others. Well, by then, having made the, the, the big leap, I think I started with Startling and Thrilling Wonder and, the, and, and the, the standard group, and I quickly found all the others. I was influenced by things like the Columbia Publications had the worst paper in the world. It was blotter paper. It wouldn't take art worth a damn, and it barely took type. But you could blot your butt with it. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, that was off-putting to a kid who, who had all of these irrelevant standards. The fiction in it was still good, however, so, okay, add that to the slot. Planet Stories, my God, it was published by Love Romances Incorporated when you are a 13-year-old kid. That is anathema. That's the last thing you want is a love pulp. But I bought it too. And in fact, later I had letters published in it. There was a really neat thing about Planet Stories. A few other magazines did it, but Planet did it more openly and, 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 and better. There was a contest among the readers for who had written the best letter in every issue. And the first and second and third place winners of that contest received original artwork from the issue in which the le their letters had appeared. I had two letters published in Planet. Unfortunately, the last one was in the final issue. No chance of winning that. But I won second place for the, uh, the first letter. And I got a, a very nice Kelly Freeze original double page spread for it, which I really appreciated because at that time I was studying to be an artist. I hadn't yet realized I could write or edit. And I, I, when I went to my first uh, World Science Fiction Convention in 55, I, I was able at the auctions there to buy up original interior artwork fairly cheaply uh, by people famous like Paul Calais great scratch board. And I bought all these to look at them and analyze them and figure out how they had done them, you know, the techniques involved, the scratch boarding, the, the pen techniques, the brush techniques, all of which I was learning then. But Planet, my letter in the final issue of Planet, I believe it was published for only one reason. In that letter, I told the editor what he needed to do with the magazine if it was not to fold. And it appeared in the issue, the last issue. So obviously my advice was not taken, but I did spell out the reasons why it wasn't going to succeed as a pulp. Because by then, which is what, 53, 54, somewhere in there, pulps were falling by the wayside right and left. Uh, some were converting to digests, like the Columbia magazines, but a lot of them just stopped. Thrilling wonder and startling just stopped. That was a, a crime. But, you know, everything changes. Publishing moves on. Even at 13 or 14, actually I probably might have been 15 by the time I was writing those letters to Planet, I was trying to understand the publishing industry. I was trying to figure it out, what worked, what didn't. 
I was very young, I was very naive, but I didn't have terrible ideas. And, and that informed that letter in the final planet. Well, by then, I was a science fiction fan. And what that means is not that I just like to read a lot of the stuff. It meant I was a member, an active member of a community called Science Fiction Fandom, which came into existence somewhere around 1930 and had built up over the years from a few dozen people into a few hundred. We all knew each other. Not that different from pulp fandom. We all knew each other. We corresponded. We put out fanzines. And we went infrequently to conventions, because there were very few conventions then. A world con and one or two regionals. That was it. Now you can go to one every weekend if you really want to. But I was a very active fan. And by 1955, I was putting out fanzines. I was contributing to other people's fanzines. And in 1955, I went to my first World Con, and I was at a room party. Now, that's something you don't seem to have here at Pulp Fest. And I think it might be an aspect of why everybody goes home so early on Sunday and, and <laughs> stuff like that. You don't have room parties. You really should think about it. They're fun. That's their only purpose. You get together with a half dozen or a dozen people you like, and you hang out, and you talk, and maybe have a few drinks. And, and, and you're socialized. That was the whole point of it. And so I sit down on a bed in a small room party next to a fellow who turns out to be Larry Shaw. And Larry Shaw is about to edit his first science fiction magazine. He'd been a fan for 10 or 15 years by then. But uh, he was a member of the original Futurians. But he was about to put out a magazine called Infinity Science Fiction, a digest-sized magazine. And he had with him page proofs of the first issue, essentially a, a loose wraparound cover and unbound pages of a complete issue, just not stapled and trimmed and all that. And he showed them to me. And here I am, this pretty new fan who's, at that point, 16 years old. And this man, who's a grown man, who is an editor in the field, somebody whose name I've heard of and respect, is treating me more or less like an equal. I thought that was incredible. That did a lot for me. And Larry became a good friend. Uh, I, I uh, later worked for him. I did books for him. Back when he was editing auto magazines, I used to drive cars to te car testers for it. Uh, great guy. And his willingness to befriend a naive, innocent kid was a great lesson to me about what science fiction fandom and fandoms in general are all about. And I would say that was one of the things that gave me a strong nudge in the, the direction that my career took. I wasn't, at that time, still thinking of myself as a writer or editor. I still thought of myself as a wannabe artist. But I was starting to realize I wasn't a very good artist, not as good as I thought I should be, at least. And fanzines had gotten me to editing and writing, per se. You know, not very well, but you keep doing it. You pick it up. You learn. And I was in the process of learning all of that. Well, at the same time, I used to mow both my yard and my grandmother's yard next door. Uh, which were rather large, and I had a lot of time to daydream while I was following that lawnmower around those yards. And I used to plan science fiction magazines in my head. I used to write the editorials for them. I used to design the contents page layouts, all in my head. And I got to say, everything I wrote in my head was better than anything I was able at that time to actually write on paper. But it was a dream of mine to become a science fiction pro. And I didn't quite know how I was going to accomplish this, but it lay up there in the future of when I'm grown up. And I took a slight detour when I was 21. I moved to New York City 
I was then married to a lovely young woman named Sylvia. And we went to New York City to live there. We found an apartment in Greenwich Village, fourth floor walk up, no elevators. And Sylvia's parents told us that they understood that we were going through a phase by living in Greenwich Village, but we would work through it, they were sure. We were there because that's where we found a place. We looked all over Manhattan for a place. I looked at a place that was going for 45 a month that was at the bottom of an air shaft and had some furniture left in it. I opened a drawer in the dresser and there were World War II ration books in that drawer. That's rent control for you. But we didn't take that place. That was too grim. I moved to New York City thinking I was going to become a jazz critic. But I was also a big fan of jazz. I'd been reading jazz writing for more than five years by then, and listening to lots of music. And I'd started writing my own record re reviews for my own fanzines. And I thought, this is something I can do. I don't know whether I can write science fiction or not, but this is something I can do. And I did. I became a jazz critic, professional jazz critic, writing for Metronome and Jazz Guide and a few other places. And uh, I made a splash. I was very successful initially uh, because I wrote the first definitive piece about a man named Ornette Coleman, who was just then coming up in the public consciousness as a new jazz artist. And Coleman, a few months later, said publicly in an interview that it was the most perceptive piece written about him. Well, that didn't hurt. So uh, I was a jazz critic for several years. But in the course of that, I discovered an unfortunate fact. There were six or eight of us young jazz critics in New York City at that time, writing for the jazz publications, doing liner notes for records, stuff like that. And one day, Joe Goldberg was one of them, and I sat down and figured out the economics of what we were doing. And we figured that the field would actually support only four of us. There wasn't that much money around. Doing liner notes for a record album, that was good for 75 bucks. My record reviews for Metronome Magazine paid $5 a piece and they wanted the records back, which I thought was insane, but I went along with it. The ones I liked, I had to go out and buy my own copies. Uh, but then I figured out how to get myself on the freebie lists of the record companies, which is another nice gig. And nonetheless, I couldn't see the career going anywhere. I had accomplished the most I could accomplish in the first two years I'd been doing it, and there wasn't going to be much more money. Even the guys like Nat Hentoff and Leonard Feather, who were the big pros in the field, they weren't getting much money either. In fact, Nat had dropped jazz criticism for writing political columns. Uh, very nice man, by the way. Treated me very well. Uh, so I started thinking about science fiction again. And a friend of mine and I were walking down 7th Avenue in New York one day, in the summer of 1961. And we started analyzing what we liked and disliked about A.E. Van Vogt. I hope most of you are familiar with him, Slan, Weapon Shops of Asia, Worlds in LA, and all the rest of them. He had a unique quality, one of which was that every 800 words he introduced a new concept or idea. That's not as easy as it sounds. So after we had spent a half hour or more talking about this, I was all fired up and I went back to my apartment and uh, sat down at a typewriter and began to write something, trying to follow these Van Vogtian principles that I had uh, arrived at, one of which, of course, was the new idea every 100 words, uh, which, wow, by the second or third 800 words, that gets harder, unless you're just willing to pull rabbits out of the hat and just go off into left field, which occasionally Van Vogt did successfully, but I wasn't that confident. But I wrote two or three or four really short chapters into this thing, and then I let it sit a little bit. Then my marriage with my first wife was breaking up, 
And I, I sat down at a typewriter and wrote a story about a man whose body caught on fire but didn't hurt him, which sort of described metaphorically what I was going through at the time. And when I finished it, I did finish it as a complete short story. I sent it off to a few publications and got rejected. So then I thought, I know Marion Zimmer Bradley. We're pretty good friends. Years earlier, she had told me that I had good ideas but needed to learn how to stretch them out into real stories rather than synopses. And uh, I asked her if she would like to have a look at the story I'd written, which I called Phoenix, I think, or New Phoenix, I'm not sure now. And, and she ran it through her typewriter once, sent it over to her agent, Scott Meredith, and it sold to Amazing that August as Phoenix. And the very same day that I heard about that sale, I heard about the sale of another story of mine, which was called I Executioner. And I Executioner was based on taking the beginning that I'd written of my Van Vogtian book and turning it into a short story. Again, I didn't quite have the confidence in my own writing abilities at that point, so I asked my friend Terry Carr, who was selling stories to FNSF at the time, if he would like to run it through his typewriter once. He did, and we sold it to IF. We got the uh, notification of the sales the same day, and both stories were published on the same day in January of 1963, uh, in If and Amazing. So I don't know which was my first sale. But I had gotten this idea from Bob Wilson Tucker, a both science fiction and mystery writer, who often took openings of novels and turned them into short stories, or did the reverse, took short stories and turned them into the openings of novels. He did this with The Long Odd Silence and several other of his novels. And I thought, that's really economical. That's getting twice as much value out of something you've written. I want to do that too. So that's what I did, you know. Uh, that's how, how, how I Executioner and Phoenix came about. And once I had done that, well, Terry and I had written a book together called Invasion from 2500, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Terry was then working for Scott Meredith as an agent, and he told me one day that a fellow named Charlie Heckelman, whom some of you will recognize as a pulp writer in the 40s and early 50s, had started up a, publishing, a book publishing company called Monarch Books. And like other people who had good ideas but not very much money, one of them being Harvey Kurtzman, he went to a really scabby company known as Charlton. Charlton were a comic book publisher who were run by the mob. I mean, totally. DC was owned by the mob, but Charlton was run by the mob. They imported their artists from Italy. They didn't speak English, and they kept them in, in what amounted to laboring villages, you know, like where you don't pay them quite enough to pay their rent, but they're paying the rent back to you, so you've got them in permanent bondage. That's how Charlton got, made its move into comics from being a rather fourth or fifth rate sheet, rate pu sheet uh, publisher of music, sheet music publisher in the 40s. That's where their start was. They also were their own distributor. And they had a very interesting way of getting their, their comics when they started onto newsstands. They would tell newsstand owners, buy at our usual rates, you know, you know, some percentage of the cover price, uh, the first five copies, and any you sell over that, you keep it all. So if you take 10 or 15 copies of a particular title and you sell the first five and, you, and then you sell all the rest, you keep all the rest. Well, we're talking 10 cent comic books here. And, and each one was probably, the, the profit margin was two or three cents. But nonetheless, it adds up with volume. And this was how Charlton became an established publisher of comic books, how they got their toe in the door, so to speak. Well, by the late 50s, 
they were bankrolling Charlie Heckelman at Monarch Books. They were bankrolling Harvey Kurtzman with, what was it? Trump, I think, which lasted a dozen or so issues. But Harvey and, and all the artists that he brought in with him as co-owners all lost their shirts. Charlton didn't lose any money at all. Now, where Monarch Brooks was concerned, Charlton felt that Monarch was doing pretty well, and therefore they wanted a bigger chunk of it. They had 49%, Charlie had 51. So they decided they wanted 51. And they told Charlie, either you give us this additional percentage of ownership, or we're just going to shut you down. Well, you may notice that Monarch Books went out of business in the early middle 60s, and that's why. But before that happened, Charlie Heckelman decided to launch a little SF line at Monarch, and he called up Terry Carr at Scott Meredith and arranged for Terry to assign stories, uh, books to a half dozen Scott Meredith writers. And these books had to be around, based around very simple science fiction concepts, just one SF concept. So we have what would happen if the world froze? What would happen if the world was flooded? What would happen if, you know, like that? And after Terry had finished telling me this, I said, gee, the only one that you didn't come up with is the invasion from future. And he said, you're right. And then we decided we would write that one ourselves. So that's how Invasion from 2500 got written. And it taught me how to write a book. I'd never written anything half that long before. I mean, my God, 60,000 words. It might have been only 45,000. I'm not sure. I think it was 60. Uh, I had never written anything more than five or 6,000 words. And I, Terry told me that I, I should write the first draft and he would do the second draft, which is how we'd been working up to then anyway. So I had to figure out how to write the first draft of a whole book. And I decided, well, we'll divide it up into chapters, outline it, chunk it up into neat little smaller, more doable goals. Just write a chapter, that's 3,000 words. I can do that. And I discovered I could do one every day, particularly since I was only writing the first draft. I could just zip right through it if I made mistakes that were up to Terry to clean up, or so I saw. Well, when I saw what Terry had finally done, he, he'd done a little bit of rewriting in spots, but mostly he'd just done little editing by hand things on the, my manuscript and given it to his wife to retype. And when I saw that, I said to myself, I could have done that. I can do that. And that's when I decided to sell my first book. So what did I do? I took I Executioner and I sold it as uh, Android Avenger to Ace Books. And I took Phoenix, and I sold it to Lancer Books as Phoenix Prime, which was originally just a working title, but everybody liked it, so we kept it. And of course, Lancer Books was being edited by my old pal, Larry Shaw, maybe 10 years or so after I'd first met him. I'm selling him books now. Cool. Well, by then, I had also gotten, in, gotten my foot into the editorial end of things. I went, see, all of this is social. Absolutely all of this is social. I never got a job cold by applying for it, ever. Every job I've had is because somebody wanted me to have it, or it was somebody I knew and I could ask them, and they'd say, oh, yeah, sure. And that's how I got the job of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Avram Davidson was a good friend of mine. Uh, the first day he got the job of editing FNSF, he, he came over to my place, and, and I was the first person he told the news to. And Terry Carr was there, and Terry said, I've got these short stories, would you like to read them? And by God, Avram bought two of them on the spot, which is how Terry got into FNSF initially. Well, Avram was then living in New York City, but he moved up to Milford, Pennsylvania, which is where Damon Knight and James Blish and Virginia Kidd and what were later known as the Milford Mafia 
all lived. So Oliver moved up there with his wife, Grania, and he would occasionally have parties up there that he would invite us in New York City to. And I was the only person that most of us knew who had a car, because you don't really need one in New York City. And so I would provide the transportation up there. And on the occasion of one party, and this must have been in early 1963, I'm there with a friend of mine who has a complaint for Avram. He said, I sent you a story submission on Monday and I got it back in the mail Wednesday. Did you see it? And Avram said, no, of course not. That was, uh, we had a, a slush pile reader and uh, we discovered that he was simply taking the manuscripts and putting them with rejection slips into the return envelopes without reading them. <laughs> and you know, just dropping them in the mailbox on the corner of 53rd Street where the FNSF offices were. And, and, and uh, so they had fired him. And I said, my ears perked up and I said, gee, Avram, do you think I could do that? Avram said, I don't see why not. And that's how I became an assistant editor of FNSA. That simple, at a party. Now there was more to it after that. There was actual work involved. I was very proud of the fact that out of the FNSA pile, which averaged 600 manuscripts a month, I found at least one publishable story. I usually passed anywhere from two or three up to a half dozen up the chain, the editorial chain to Avram, or later Ed Furman. But at least one would actually be bought. And it became a regular thing. Every issue of FNSF from late 1963 up through, oh, 66, maybe 67, has a, a slush pile story in it, every issue. So one out of every 600 stories per month did make it into the magazine, and that pleased me. Of course, in the process, I read an awful lot of stuff you just can be grateful you will never see. <laughs> there was this one woman who was sending me a story a day, and they were, they were frankly, crackpot. They were, you know, ufology carried yet another step into the occult. And, and they made no sense as stories at all. They were just mindless ramblings, but she sent one every day. And, you know, and of course, I'm only going into FNSF once a week to pick up manuscripts, so there'd be three or four of them in each batch. And then finally, one day came when I opened one of hers, and there was a letter in it saying, if you don't buy this story, I'm never going to send you any more. <laughs> and I thought, well, all right. <laughs> But uh, FNSF was a good training ground for me. Uh, after Avram left and Ed Furman took over, Ed had been in the office every day. The FNSF office was a room behind a rental agency on the ground floor in an apartment building on 53rd Street in Manhattan. You had to go all the way through, past all the receptionist secretaries and whatever else they were doing in the rental offices before you got to the FNSF offices. It wasn't like they had their own entrance. But once back there, Ed Furman would be there, and I've just made a, a subway ride in from Brooklyn. I want to sit down and chat for a bit before I go back. And uh, years later, Ed told me that he, that was an invaluable learning experience for him, that I was telling him all the stuff that he didn't know about what was going on in the field at that point, that he needed to know. You know, he was grateful for, for learning. And he gave me copy editing work, he gave me blurbing, occasional book reviews. I actually wrote several editorials upon request about assigned topics. And, and it was great. At one point, Joseph Furman, Ed's father, who was the owner-publisher of FNSF, he had been part of a larger combine Mercury Press, which originally had a radio show and uh, published Ellery Queen and Jonathan Press books and Mercury Press books, uh, digest size paperbacks in the 40s. 
It's where a lot of Dashiell Hammett collections first appeared that ended up in Dell. And uh, at some point, uh, Davis, uh, Ziff Davis's son set up his own publishing company, Davis Publications, and he bought Ellery Queen from Joe Furman. And at that point, Joe was down to one magazine, which wasn't very viable for any publisher. And he had tried Venture SF in the very late 50s, but that had not been a success. And now Ziff Davis wanted to sell Amazing and Fantastic. And so Joe entered the bidding for them. And the understanding I had with Ed was that I would get at least one of them to edit. Probably fantastic, probably not amazing. But you know, suddenly there would be three magazines instead of the one. And so there'd be more work for me and I would probably get one of them. And those, those thoughts buoyed me for several months. But Joe Furman did not buy Amazing and Fantastic. Saul Cohen did. Uh, I guess his bid was better. I don't know. Now Saul Cohen was a man who at that point was the masthead credited publisher of Galaxy, If, and Worlds of Tomorrow. In fact, he had created the title Worlds of Tomorrow. And previous to that, well, he'd started out at DC Comics when he was 18 years old. When EC Comics was formed, he moved to EC as the business manager. When uh, MC Gaines, the original owner of EC, died, and his son Bill Gaines wasn't interested in comics for more than a year, it was Saul who ran the company and changed fat, to, fat and slat into crime patrol. The, Got, got the company a little more successful. Uh, and so that was the beginning of EC. Then he had moved to Avon at some point. He was involved with the Avon Science Fiction and Fantasy Reader, a digest size magazine in the early 50s, which he said, although his name was honored as the editor, he wasn't the real editor. I don't think Saul was ever an editor, really. He was more a publisher and, and a business guy. But he and a silent partner named Arthur Bernard, and some of this is, by the way, in the magazine you were all given here, so in an article I wrote, so I don't want to recapitulate needlessly. But Arthur Bernard was the money man. Saul didn't have any money. I mean, not on the level of buying publications. And Arthur had gotten his current his current business model, let's put it this way, I'm not sure exactly how he started. He, he had been in pulps on some fringe level for a while. But in the 50s, he bought some of the trashier men's sweat magazines. And his business model was not to buy any new material for them, just to cut up the old issues and reassemble them as new issues, literally, with scissors and scotch tape. It must have looked awful. I never saw any. But that was his business model, and that's what he sold Saul Cohen on for Amazing and Fantastic. Ziff Davis had only one asset to sell, and that was the rights to all the stories that Amazing had ever published. Because Ziff Davis, like the publisher before it, Tech, and maybe even Gernsback, I don't know, bought all rights, not first rights. I mean, well, they're called serial rights when you publish a story in, in a magazine, even if it's a short story and not serialized. And you, you can talk about first North American serial rights, or you can talk about world serial rights, and you can talk about first use rights and second use rights, or all use rights. I don't think any of them, with the exception of Street and Smith, bought book rights. I know some of the astounding authors had trouble getting their, selling their, their serials from astounding as books because astounding, this is in the 40s, claimed, Street and Smith claimed that they owned the book rights and had rights to first refusal. So they would have to refuse the book as a book before it could be offered to anyone else. Well, in fact, Ziv Davis didn't own as many rights as they thought they did, but they told Saul they did. What they didn't know is that Ray Palmer had been cutting side deals with most of his regular writers in the 40s. 
Uh, but I don't think any of that applied to the early 50s stuff that appeared in the first digests, Amazings and Fantastics, which were high budget material by big names. You know, originally, Amazing was supposed to go slick in 1950, and Howard Brown bought a whole lot of five and 10 cent a word big name writers for it. And then the Korean War happened, and Amazing did not go slick. But that's the material that appeared in the first Digest Amazings in 53. And that's why they had it. They'd been sitting on it for three years. In any event, Saul takes over the magazines, puts them on a mostly reprint basis, and you probably know all you need to know about that. Uh, three successive editors suffered with this, Joe Ross, Harry Harrison, and Barry Ballsberg. Well, when Saul hired me, I had a somewhat different attitude towards the magazines than Joe or Harry or Barry had, because I was a fan. Because I had always wanted to edit my own prosine, as we called them, professional magazine. Uh, and I had ideas for what I wanted to do with them. And this was exciting. And the fact that I was going to be paid peanuts was not essential. I mean, it's not like FNSF was paying me well. FNSF paid me $35 a month throughout the 60s. That's pocket change even then. But it was what I wanted to do, and it wasn't all I was doing. I was also writing books. I was selling books. By the end of the 60s, I'd had more than a dozen books published. Uh, I think I averaged two a year from about 64 on, but it didn't really work out to the average. In 66, I did four. And I always thought of myself as a fast writer because I had found this model of writing a chapter a day, and it worked. This meant I could write a book in three weeks, which was fine, except then I didn't feel like doing any more of that for a few months. I was burned out from it. It's an intense thing. I, I, uh, I lived the book I was writing. I barely did anything else except eat and sleep, and when I sleep, slept, I dreamed. And if the dreams were any good, they went into the book, along with everything else. You know, you use what you got. But uh, in the process of doing that, well, a lot of you have brought books up to me to autograph. And virtually all of you who have read them tell me you like them. So I know I did something right. And, and basically what I think I did right was I wrote books I wanted to read. I never wrote for anyone but myself. Well, me and the editor I sold it to, but that was secondary. And I really enjoyed doing it, but it was a kind of a catch-as-catch-can kind of existence. I get these big fat checks two or three times a year. In between, I was getting by on 35 a month from FNSF and freelance sales. And all of it added up to barely getting by. But I said to myself, when I'm in my old age, my royalties will support me. You may all laugh. Right now, the majority of my books are in print, but only as e-books. And I get royalty statements twice a year from the British publishers who done them. And they show that I've earned out about half of my advance now on 10 books. <laughs> so someday maybe there'll be some royalties, but not yet. Uh, there, there are a lot of painful lessons that laid in wait for me when I was a young man. I thought all major science fiction writers were like Robert Heinlein, handsome, well-to-do, debonair men about town, Lamont Cranston types. And, and it was so far from the truth. Even Heinlein wasn't really like that, and he wasn't a very nice man either. Which I found horribly disillusioning, because he was my favorite science fiction writer for more than 20 years. Uh, 
Robert Sheckley, who was a good friend of mine, essentially died destitute. And he had a movie. Didn't do him that much good in the long run. It hasn't done most science fiction writers much good in the long run. I'm not sure it's done any pulp writers very well in the long run, except for those who broke out of the, the, the genre and had mainstream success, became bestsellers, or moved on to movies and became script writers. But, there, but I have to say I think writing fiction is more of an avocation than a profession these days. And I notice that increasingly the people who are writing are self-publishing. Some with success, but I gotta say, most of them probably couldn't sell that stuff if they tried to find a real publisher. You know, it's not that good. You need someone to talk to you when you're learning how to write. You know, you need a writer's group or you need a really friendly editor who's willing to walk you through a number of rewrites and then you need the patience to do it. But, oh well. My career as a science fiction writer is not totally, but mostly behind me. My last book was published years ago. My last story was published a couple of years ago. I had a story in analog. My first sale to analog in all this time. Back in the 60s, I sent a story called The Peacock King to John Campbell at Analog. It was ultimately published in FNSF and it's been anthologized a number of times. I wrote it with a friend of mine named Larry McCombs. And it is, as far as I can tell, the first psychedelic science fiction story. It's about astronauts being trained to use hyperspace, which involves total mental disorientation, so they train them with psychedelics. And it turns out a good thing they did, because they lose their spaceship in the middle of the flight and have to find it. All of this in the mental hyperspace that they're kind of in. And for a minute, the protagonist is, I don't know whether he was naked or just not, he was minimally clothed, in space, in the vacuum of space. And John Campbell rejected this story with a two-page letter and when he went into considerable detail about how scientifically inaccurate this was and how anyone exposed to the vacuum of space would blow up. And I knew that was flat wrong because I knew about uh, tunnel workers digging tunnels under the Hudson, or no, the East River uh, for subways in the early part of the 20th century, there was a tunnel blowout, and one tunnel worker was blown up through the bottom, the, the silt bed of, of the river, and through God knows how many feet of water, and erupted in a water spout, and he lived to tell it. Now, he was in an environment where the air was compressed to about 50 pounds per square inch. And he was reduced to, what is it, six or seven pounds per square inch that we have? A, hmm? 14, okay, whatever it was, it was a significant differential and he did not explode. He may have had some ruptured uh, uh, veins in his eyes or something, you know. But he lived, he lived to tell about it. So I knew this was wrong. What I didn't know was that Campbell had been involved in what amounted to a feud with Arthur Clarke over this very point the previous 10 years and I had unwittingly stepped into the crossfire. <laughs> if any of you saw 2001, that's Clarke's answer to Campbell. So at any rate, that's a, a little sideline there. Um, I learned also in those days, when I was submitting stories, that it really helps to have a field with lots of editors in it, lots of markets, because every editor has his or her idiosyncrasies. You know, uh, there's always certain things that they won't want to buy that somebody else will. You don't necessarily know what those are. People found out in the 50s that H.L. Gold was agoraphobic 
and that if you set your story in a confined space, he liked it better. <laughs> and that's true. I first heard that from Robert Silverberg, who figured it out and immediately started selling stories to Gold at, at Galaxy. Uh, I mean, Gold did not leave his apartment for years. And when finally he was talked into leaving his apartment, he was in a taxi that was in an accident. And that was the end of his leaving his apartment. His wife, Evelyn, was his, his spokesperson at conventions. Well, that's a sidelight, but I'm full of them. How are we doing on time? It's about time to wrap up. Okay, I, I think at this point I've, I've hit all the high points. I mean, I haven't talked much about editing amazing and fantastic, but that's all in print. I mean, that's all accessible to you, so I don't really think I need to, to get to it. I myself am a fan of SF, pulps, and comic books, as well as jazz, progressive rock, and a variety of other things. I'm in a band right now. We've put out 54 albums thus far. They haven't sold much, but we don't care. It's a hobby. <laughs> Everything has to be a hobby. Are there any questions that anyone would like to ask me? Someone? Yes. I just want to say that they have lousy distribution in the town where I grew up. Finally, one day, I found a science fiction magazine. This was May 1972. It was this one. You were the editor. I loved it. I had a great experience with my first science fiction magazine. I want to say thank you. I read it for many other years. Also, did, did you do the other reprints like science fiction adventure? No. No, I, I washed my hands of the reprints. While, while we had reprints in Amazing and Fantastic under me, they were selected by a fellow named Arnie Katz, who was, I think, on the masthead during that period. But of course, I pushed them out of the magazine as quick as I could. But you know, Cohen put out all these other things with shifting titles. You know, the greatest science fiction stories ever told, I think, was one of them, or some such. You know, and they. I, I regarded them as garbage myself. Well, people associate with amazing like yourself are the greatest stories to tell. You normally don't hear from the mainstream science fiction histories I've been reading for the last 46 years. In, in the past couple of years, there have been books like Man from Mars, Ray Palmer's Amazing Pulp Journey, War Over Lemuria, and cult magazines A to Z by Earl Kemp and Lewis Ortiz. Earl is a good friend of mine. Yeah. I haven't read them, so it's very hard for me to have a comment on them. I'd like to read the Palmer one. I, I, Palmer was my hero when he was doing Other Worlds. I wanted Amazing to, be, to have all the characteristics that I most admired in Other Worlds, which is a strong editorial personality and good letter column. You know, that was my goal with Amazing and Fantastic, was to evoke what Palmer had evoked in me. Thank you. Yes? Great uh, overview. Was that a deal between you and Marvel, or did they just come looking and you were there? Well, like everything else in my life, that's a social thing. I was friends with Stan Lee. Uh, we had met doing a, an after midnight radio call in show at Columbia University and uh, hit it off and, and liked each other and did some hanging out together. And, what happened was that Otto Binder, who was the old Captain Marvel writer and also a science fiction writer in his youth as Ian O. Binder, um, iRobot, all that, um, he had failed to get his foot in the door as a Marvel Comics writer with Stan Lee. Stan didn't feel that Otto understood the Marvel style that Stan had launched with Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. And so Otto made an end run about around Stan and he went to, what's his name, the guy who owned the... the uh, Martin Goodman, yes. He went, went to him and talked him into letting Otto do some books, fiction, prose books, based on Marvel characters, but Goodman was too smart to let him have uh, Spider-Man or Fantastic Four, but he would let him have some of the lesser ones like Avengers and Captain America and whatnot. Well, and Otto went to Bantam Books and sold this to them. 
and he did write the Avengers book himself. Well, when Stan found out about this, he was really upset. And he told the people at Bantam, listen, if you're going to do this, get Ted White. He, he'll do a better job. Now, I had been asked to write for Marvel, but I had turned it down because I didn't think I could do something that was all dialogue balloons. I, I didn't feel comfortable with that format, I guess. Roy Thomas was a good friend of mine then, and he used to ask me, well, wouldn't you like to do this? They, they had sample pages of penciled art that they would give you as a test, see how you would supply the, the balloons for it. And I said, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I'm, I'm not good at that. Don't worry about that. But so along comes the Bandom deal, and, and, and at Stan's urging, uh, I got to do the Captain America book. And my agent, who had all, been previously trying to sell Bantam the idea of me doing a Batman book, and then Bantam had found out that they couldn't do any Batman or Superman books because Signet had the rights to those DC characters because they were all uh, independent news distributed. So uh, Bantam was primed to know who I was. So when Stan said, get Ted White, well, they had it coming from two directions by then. So I went in and had a very pleasant meeting with a vice president at Bantam where we discussed how much we both liked Ross McDonald, which they were publishing. <clears throat> and I walked out with a contract on a handshake. And the contract was unique in my experience because this is a work for hire. This meant I didn't own the property. And normally when that's done, you just get one payment, a flat payment. You don't get royalties. But my agent negotiated a royalty contract whereby if the book went into subsequent printings, I got a subsequent uh, additional payments for each printing, which is the way the Italians do it, by the way. They don't pay you royalties. They pay you for the entire print run. God bless them. Uh, so it, my book was, I wrote it in the fall of 1966. It was supposed to come out in February, January, February of 67. It was short order writing. And uh, in January of 67, Otto's book comes out. And I don't know how many of you have seen it, but it's dreadful. It, it isn't in any respect a good book. The first chapter consists solely for a number of pages as descriptions of the costumes worn by, worn by each individual member of the Avengers. You know, more than a page of description of each Avengers costume. You know, what color it is, what color the briefs are, the color of the belt, the cape if any, you know, all that crap. I mean, no storyline, no plot, no hook to grab the reader and pull him in. Well, apparently, very few readers have pulled in because the book tanked for Bantam. They were so unhappy with it, even though they had my, my book delivered to them, they put off publishing it for almost a year and a half. They didn't publish it until spring of 68. And I suppose by then they kind of figured, like, if we don't publish it, it's a dead loss, so let's get it out and forget about it. Uh, of course, the timing was all wrong by then. In, 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 in January of 67, the Batman TV show was still on the air. And there was this huge faddish interest in comic book books. There were publishing paperbacks that were reprints in black and white of Marvel comics. And I think they may have been doing that with Superman and Batman too, different publishers. And uh, for a little while, there was this nice little wave you could kind of crest along on for sales. But by spring of 68, it had come and gone. It had been gone for nearly a year. And my book did well enough that it sold out its first printing, but not well enough to do its second. So I never saw more royalties. And I blame Otto Bender entirely for that. <laughs> I had a lot of fun writing it. I, it took only two weeks to write, and it wrote itself. 
It wrote itself without an outline. And I, I think the principle that you added there with Cap when he was buried in the, the, uh, when the subway collapsed on him and he got skinnier to rebuild the damage to his body, I've seen that used time and time again in other places and haven't seen it used until then. I'll tell you what my favorite scene was. My favorite scene is where they unmask him. They, they've, they've captured him. They take his mask off, and they all look at him, and they say, I don't know. I've never seen him before. Who is he? Because Steve Rogers was totally anonymous. So that was fun to write. I'm getting the word here. I think it's time to wrap it up. Okay, folks, let's have a big hand. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast. Brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.